Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Sheldon, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Homeless mothers have high rates of depression and other mental health conditions. These issues may be related to their living circumstances, but also represent underlying health problems. It is important to recognize and address clinical depression through systematic screening when homeless mothers seek primary care, as untreated depression may affect their ability to change their circumstances and take care of their children. Factors that need to be considered in developing a care model are the multiple competing demands of homeless mothers to find employment, housing, and services to meet their children's needs, as well as significant trauma and potential substance abuse issues. Such women may shy away from mental health treatment because of bad past experiences or fear that it may affect their ability to keep custody of their children. Providing depression care within a primary care clinic helps to address these barriers to treatment. The authors of this continuing medical education offering conducted a pilot intervention study of mothers who screened positive for depression in two randomly selected shelter-based primary care clinics in New York over 18 months. Study participants completed a psychosocial health and mental health assessment at baseline, three months, and six months. The care model resulted in homeless women with depression completing more sessions with a depression care manager and the primary care provider and greater acceptance and use of antidepressant medications. While this small pilot study did not have the power to demonstrate significant mean depression score differences between intervention and control women at six-month follow-up, there was some evidence that more intervention women improved by a clinically significant degree. The model appears promising as an approach to address the significant need for depression treatment in this high-risk population. This research was supported by a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health. Along with the rest of the world, use of the Internet has been increasing rapidly in the northeastern part of India. The authors conducted this study to gain information on the prevalence, risk factors, and ill effects of Internet use among the medical student population. The cross-sectional study sample comprised 188 medical students from India. Students completed a sociodemographic form and an Internet use questionnaire, both created for this study, and the Young's 20-item Internet addiction test after they received brief instructions. Data were collected during a 10-day period in June 2015. Of the 188 medical students, 46.8% were at increased risk of Internet addiction. Those who were found to be at increased risk had longer years of Internet exposure and always online status. Also among this group, the men were more prone to develop an online relationship. Excessive Internet usage also led to poor performance in college and feeling moody, anxious, and depressed. The ill effects of Internet addiction include withdrawal from real-life relationships, deterioration in academic activities, and a depressed and nervous mood. 
Internet use for non-academic purposes is increasing among students. Thus, there is an immediate need for strict supervision and monitoring at the institutional level. The possibility of becoming addicted to the Internet should be emphasized to students and their parents through awareness campaigns so that interventions and restrictions can be implemented at the individual and family levels. As the symptoms and syndromes of schizophrenia are continuous or the same across age groups, the primary differentiating factors between childhood and adolescent onset schizophrenia are likely to be the comorbid conditions developing in these children over time. In this study, a retrospective cohort design was employed using South Carolina's Medicaid claims data set covering outpatient and inpatient medical services between January 1999 and December 2013 to identify patients less than or equal to 17 years of age with a diagnosis of schizophrenia spectrum disorders. Multivariate analysis was then used to examine the demographic and comorbidity factors differentiating childhood versus adolescent onset schizophrenia in a community-based system of health care. Early onset schizophrenia was diagnosed in 613 children in adolescent cases during the study EPIC or 0.2% of this population-based cohort. The early onset schizophrenia cohort was primarily male and African-American. 22.5% were diagnosed at less than or equal to 12 years of age, and 77.5% were diagnosed as adolescents greater than or equal to 13 years of age. The mean length of time being followed in the Medicaid data set was 12.6 years. The childhood onset schizophrenia subgroup was twice as likely to have speech, language, or educational disabilities and an ADHD diagnosis, whereas the adolescent onset subgroup was significantly more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder a substance use disorder, an organic brain disorder, or mental retardation or intellectual disability. Primary care practitioners should identify and maintain vigilant surveillance of any cases of pediatric neurodevelopmental disorders which appear to be highly comorbid and genetically related, and refer them early and promptly for specialized treatment. Identifying effective treatments for generalized anxiety disorder has been an important but challenging endeavor. Velazidone and SSRI and 5-HT1A receptor partial agonist, currently approved for treatment of major depressive disorder, has also been tried in patients with generalized anxiety disorder. Post-hoc analyses of three generalized anxiety disorder trials indicate that velazidone may effectively treat anxiety symptoms as indicated by mean improvements in Hamilton Anxiety Rating Scale, or HAMA total score, as well as by response and remission rates that were defined using HAMA total scores. Since available, pharmacotherapies have varying effects on the psychic and somatic anxiety symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder. Kahn and colleagues conducted post-hoc analyses using HAMA subscale scores 
and individual HAME item scores. Mean score improvements on the HAME subscale of somatic anxiety and psychic anxiety and on 11 of 14 HAME items were significantly greater with philazidone than with placebo. Symptom reduction was also analyzed based on category shift analyses for each HAME item. These analyses identified the percentage of patients who improved from moderate to severe symptoms at baseline to no symptoms after double-blind treatment. The percentage of patients who met the HAME item shift criteria was significantly higher for velazidone compared with placebo on the four HAME items related to psychic anxiety, anxious mood, tension, intellectual, and depressed mood, and on five HAME items related to somatic anxiety, somatic muscular, somatic sensory, cardiovascular symptoms, respiratory symptoms, and autonomic symptoms. According to the authors, these results indicate that velazidone may be effective in treating a range of psychic and somatic anxiety symptoms in adults with generalized anxiety disorder. This study was supported by funding from Forest Laboratories, LLC, and Allergan Affiliate. This study describes the development process of a brief patient-reported screening tool designed to identify individuals with probable binge eating disorder. The screening tool is called the 7-Item Binge Eating Disorder Screener, or BEDS-7. Binge eating disorder is now a distinct eating disorder in the newest Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5. This disorder is characterized by recurrent episodes of binge eating, accompanied by feeling a sense of lack of control and marked distress over one's eating behaviors. The binge episodes must occur on average at least once per week over a three-month period, must not occur exclusively during the course of bulimia nervosa or anorexia nervosa, and must not be associated with recurrent inappropriate compensatory behaviors. To develop the BED-7, a larger pool of draft BEDS items were developed based on the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria, review of existing eating disorder questionnaires, and input from binge eating disorder clinical experts. The screening tool was then evaluated in a cross-sectional study of 97 participants, which included a semi-structured clinical interview to diagnose participants with and without binge eating disorder. Following a series of analyses, a seven-item binge eating disorder screener maximized sensitivity at 100% while closely preserving the content of the DSM-5 criteria. Implementation of the brief patient-reported BED-7 in real-world clinical practice is expected to promote better understanding of binge eating disorder characteristics and help physicians in primary care and psychiatry settings identify patients who may have the disorder. Use of the BED-7 also may facilitate further evaluation and referral to specialists. Funding for the study, an article was provided by Shire Development, LLC. RTI Health Solutions was contracted by Shire to design and implement this project.
More patients are becoming aware of the availability of better medical care at tertiary health care centers. Thus, patients are starting to present directly to tertiary care rather than primary care. The objective of this article was to determine the pattern of care sought in cases of psychiatric emergency before presentation to a tertiary health care center in Nigeria. Consecutive recruitment of 180 emergency psychiatric cases, which comprised a total of 156 patients, presenting to the Accident and Emergency Unit of a University Teaching Hospital in Nigeria, was conducted from June 2008 to January 2009. A structured instrument was used to gather the patient's information, including their sociodemographic characteristics, their care before presentation, and the relations accompanying them to the hospital. The authors found that 44.4% of patients had not sought care elsewhere before presenting to the tertiary health center. The next largest group of patients, 26.1%, had sought care in a church before presentation, and 6.7% had sought traditional care, such as traditional healing homes where herbs are used for treatment. Most patients were accompanied by their immediate family members. The authors found that most patients with psychiatric emergencies prefer to present directly to the tertiary health care center. They conclude that there is a need to strengthen primary health care services in the environments in which they have not been effective to avoid overburdening the tertiary health care centers. Good sleep is important for good health as insomnia diminishes quality of life. Risk factors for sleeplessness include being female and older, doing shift work, or having other related or unrelated health problems. Taking care of people with insomnia is a tough job, and this is especially true in cases of pre-existing medical and psychiatric problems, possible drug interferences, and worries about sleep medication abuse. In this brief report, the authors provide updated information on insomnia, including evaluation and treatment approaches. Evaluations of problem sleep should always include a complete history and physical examination, focusing on medical and psychiatric causes of poor sleep and record of any substance abuse. Clinicians should provide personal tips on how to improve sleep. These tips might include not drinking coffee after lunchtime and avoiding alcohol after dinner. The main focus of insomnia treatment includes behavioral therapies and medications as needed. There are several off-label medicines such as doxepin, gabapentin, prazosin, and hydroxine available to help improve sleep. Despite the importance of good sleep, it may be difficult to manage insomnia while caring for other conditions during a brief doctor's office appointment. Education about lifestyle changes and offering appropriate medications can benefit these patients. In this brief report, the authors describe the concept of irritability in children and youth, which has been revisited in the DSM-5. Traditionally, this behavior has been more commonly associated with mood disorders, which may account for the rising incidence of bipolar disorder diagnosis and overuse of mood-stabilizing medications in pediatric patients. While not predictive of mania, persistent non-episodic irritability, if undetected, may escalate to violent behavior with potentially serious outcomes. 
It is therefore important to educate clinicians about how to accurately assess irritability in pediatric patients. Since primary care providers are at the forefront in the assessment of pediatric patients, the authors present an algorithm to aid in the screening process. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to read a new entry in our psychotherapy casebook section and special web-based interactive content. You will also find numerous case reports on a variety of topics such as multiple sclerosis, Cotard syndrome, narcotic prescribing, and controlled substance monitoring programs, just to name a few. We update our website weekly with new postings, so there is always something new to explore. Also, we are excited to offer a digital flip page edition of this issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This turn page format will give you the feel of holding a print journal in your hands while allowing you to seamlessly navigate from article to article. We hope you will take a look at our digital journal as we think you will like it. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.